You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Find it on Spotify, Audio Boom, Apple, Acast, basically everywhere. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, on Facebook at Thoroughly Good Me, and on Instagram at Thoroughly underscore Good. Composer Joseph Phibbs is the focus of this thoroughly good classical music podcast in which he and I explore his connection with the composer Benjamin Britten. We also discuss the arrangement Phibbs has made of Britten's orchestral song cycle Our Hunting Fathers, which will be performed at Snape Maltings Concert Hall in August 2021. Our Hunting Fathers is Britten's first opus, a setting of five poems devised and partly written by W.H. Auden, its music set for soprano and orchestra. The original work by Britten was premiered in 1936 when the composer was 22 years old. He had already completed music for GPO film projects like Coldface and the King's Stamp. He'd also signed with publisher Boozy and Hawks and, in the process, managed to skewer earnings that put him on more than twice the national average age. Not bad going for Britten, only two or so years after graduating from the Royal College of Music. Our Hunting Fathers marks the start of the composer's working relationship with W.H. Auden II, a partnership which plays a key role in Britain's development, both personally and professionally. In 1936, Britain said of the poet, He is the most charming, most vital genius and important person I know. Auden would later say to Britain in 1942, I think you are the great white hope of music. Nine years before the premiere of Britain's seminal work, Peter Grimes, our Hunting Fathers was modern music for 1930s ears. Uncomfortably so for some. By all accounts, at the rehearsal for the premiere, musicians in the orchestra mocked Britain's writing. In particular, the opening Rats Away, itself a highly descriptive piece of writing for both orchestra and voice, which creates a deeply unsettling image. It was another composer whose work was being premiered in that same concert which came to Britain's defence in the rehearsal. Hardly great friends either. That composer was Rafe Vaughan Williams. In the present day, Joseph Phibbs' work reduces Britain's trademark efficient and evocative scoring in Our Hunting Fathers down to a string quartet, percussion and harp. It's clearly more of a pleasure than a chore for Phibbs, whose love of Britain is evident from the thoughtful way he refers to the composer. Phibbs' connection with Britain stems too from a music education experience he and I both shared, only we didn't quite realise that until part way through this interview. What I'm coming to appreciate now is that this connection with Britain is an especially Suffolk experience. 
Britain is one of Suffolk's valuable exports. In my mind, Suffolk doesn't have many of those. Joseph Phibbs was born in London and studied at the Purcell School, King's College London and Cornell University. In his career, he's composed for many of the UK's leading classical musicians, been rightly heralded in the classical music press and broadcast media. He's also taught at Wells, King's College London and Cambridge University and has, over the years, also retained his connection with Britain as a director of the Britain Estate. Like the composer of Our Hunting Fathers, Phibbs is published by Boozy and Hawks and also Universal. In addition to Phibbs' arrangement of Our Hunting Fathers in August, there's also a new cello sonata premiered on September the 29th by Guy Johnston and Tom Poster at the Hatfield House Chamber Music Festival. Joseph and I started our conversation with another work, though. Search through the podcast archives and you'll find an interview with clarinetist Mark van der Veel from 2019. It features Joseph Phibbs' clarinet concerto, which is why, as a clarinetist myself, this podcast episode begins with some shameless adulation. talk to you was because when Rebecca the lovely Rebecca suggested that we spoke I couldn't quite place your name I was thinking I, I know I remember I remember talking about him if not to him uh, and then she reminded me about the clarinet concerto um, and it's only as a result of this interview that I've revisited the clarinet concerto I remember saying to Mark who played it how I loved it I listened to it again last night. My God, I really love it. Tell me how you came to write that. Well, firstly, thank you. It's a lovely reaction. Um, I... I don't do that for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'd known Mark for a long time, actually since 1999, I think, or even earlier we met. And I'd, I'd had the good fortune of writing for him several times. Um, I featured him in a, in a movement from an orchestral piece I wrote for the Philharmonia um, in 2012, 13, I think it was. Um, so when he asked me to write him a concerto, I was absolutely delighted. Um, I knew his playing, of course, so, I mean, that was a great thing, but I mean, also his versatility as a player, he plays with London Symphony Theatre as well. 
was something um, that I wanted to kind of tap into. So it was then a question of commissioning it. He very generously was one of the co-commissioners, as was um, the Philharmonia, and then an Austrian Malmo also came in as another commissioner. Um, and that's yeah, that's really how it how it happened. Uh, what I'm drawn to, uh, and this might be um, symptomatic of the time that I'm in at the moment. What I'm particularly drawn to is the second movement, uh, which I think is uh, eerie, dark, slightly scary. I don't know. That scary is not a good word, is it really? Uh, it casts a spell, and and it might possibly be ever so slightly disturbing. <laughs> You're nodding in a way that says, hooray! did you settle on that obviously it's what you intended on some level but how did you go about arriving at that I wanted I suppose to in each section of the piece to kind of create a very particular mood and that movement specifically um, as you rightly described is unsettling and that's what, yes. what that was my far intention more, far more diplomatic yeah. way <laughs> slightly more grown up way of describing scary <laughs> no no uh, anything you like um, but it, it's a, I, I suppose I hear it as a kind of nocturne but a, a very you know a very agitated nocturne yeah. um, I mean one of the things that I think is kind of unique to the clarinet certainly among woodwind instruments is it's it's kind of appearance of versatility within lots of different genres so there's klezmer 
Um, there's uh, you know jazz, uh, folk music, of course, a lot of uh, or Eastern European folk music. So I wanted to kind of tap into some of that, and I think maybe that was the movement where I found the area that I, that I could use for for kind of bits of kind of bits of, bits of klezmer-like music. But is that something that one stumbles on in a draft, or is it does you know whilst making one's espresso? Do yeah. you go? No, actually, that's what I want to have happen. Do you see what I mean? Because, for example, I spoke to Danny Howard uh, a few podcasts ago where she talked about her technique, uh, her process, which is, you know, scribble loads of things down and then whichever sticks. She didn't say it like this, obviously slightly more uh, slightly more professional. But, um, you know, scribble stuff down, see what sticks, and then explore developing something. I'm wondering whether the same thing applied here because it seems so distinct and so deliberate. I think, I, from from what I can remember, that it was very much planned that I wanted to, yeah, to to bring that in into that movement. But you know, as as uh, Danny Howard says, I mean, it's, it, it does apply that you you have kind of aspirations for a movement, but a lot of which kind of get thrown out because they just don't fit, or they're you know they they should be in a different movement or something of that type. So, you, although, as much as you can make a blueprint for a piece, uh, for me anyway, I have to allow. For a kind of flexibility within that blueprint because the music takes you kind of where it wants to go which I think is right you know I always when I was teaching I would always say to my students you know the, the music is always right however uh, sophisticated your plan what, what, what a nice get out <laughs> yeah what a nice get out indeed <laughs> love to see you in comp- uh, conversation with the critic no I think you'll find that the music is right it's, not, it's nothing to do with me um <clears throat> You clearly are comfortable with the concerto form. Do you have aspirations to write a symphony? I'm now thinking, you've just said that out loud, he might have done that already. I've not written a symphony. Uh, I've written a number of orchestral pieces and I would love to write a symphony. Um, Quite what form it would take, I don't know, but um, it would be a great challenge to do that. Um, I I found actually with some of my chamber pieces recently that this kind of idea of a traditional three or four movement form is one that's still quite appealing, uh, albeit you know doing it in a slightly different way, maybe linking the movements or doing other things with them. But no, I like the idea of a large canvas um, to explore a symphonic scale piece is is attractive to me, and and I do love writing for orchestra. I haven't done it for two or three years now, but it's always a challenge. And, and what is the challenge? I think the the enjoyable part of the challenge is is using such a large uh large canvas i use the word again to to kind of present your ideas on um obviously there's all the kind of coloristic possibilities which i still find fascinating to kind of look into you know what what, what combines with what in an interesting way but i think the the scale of it and and the idea that you can play with you can kind of play with musical perspective i is how i describe it in in orchestral writing that you I don't think that you can really do in any other medium in quite the same way. Um, so, I mean, the example I sometimes use is that you, you can have a kind of a solo trumpet play fortissimo, and it obviously sounds very, very loud indeed, but it still sounds like a soloist, where, where, whereas you can have 30 violins play pianissimo, but it sounds massive <laughs> because it's a, 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 a crowd of players playing. So it, it, all those things you can explore with, with orchestral writing. Um, 
so no, I'd, I'd I'd love to do more of it. How has the how has the pandemic sort of impacted your um, creative aspirations? If indeed it has, I don't think I, I'm not aware that it has um, particularly. Um, I mean, I've carried on trying to write what I've set out to write during the, you know trying to meet deadlines that I that I had thinking about pieces um, that are coming up. I, I, I don't know, I don't think it's really had much impact that I'm aware of. I mean, sometimes these I, things you, you, you realise, you know, further down the line that actually it did. And maybe, maybe it did, but I, I'm not really aware of that. I asked because I noticed that my listening preferences have changed. I had, I said in a previous episode, or indeed, depending on when this is put out in a future episode, uh, that... I've listened to a lot of contemplative piano music, a lot of reflective piano music. I'm probably at, at my limit of that now. Um, but also turned to chamber music during this period, <clears throat> and it was instant. You know, it was the idea of listening to an orchestra when I knew that an orchestra couldn't easily be on stage. I'm talking about a year ago now. was like, no, I can't, I can't listen to an orchestra now. Um that's what that's really the motivation for the question because my listening tastes have changed i wonder whether create whether a creative's creative aspirations will have changed no, that's really interesting actually um what you say about chamber i mean i wonder whether there's also a kind of intimacy about chamber music which i mean i don't know maybe that's not the case but um i mean there is an element person, of that yeah yeah, yeah. um yes I, I i don't think my listening taste changed a great deal i mean i suppose at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we really didn't know quite what we were dealing with, um, I guess a lot of us maybe, you know, took took a moment to actually think about our, our mortality and, and, you know, what, what could be around the corner. We just didn't know what was upon us. So, I mean, I guess for everyone that changes a little bit how you live your life, the decisions you make, the priorities you have. Um, you know those great big novels that you've never read that you think you better get on with. Really ought to get round to that now. Okay. <laughs> All Fair those enough. symphonies that you know you <laughs> haven't listened to. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I've I've also been briefed that you have, and it's quite apparent from the bookshelf, uh, which is one of the reasons, one of, another reason I was very excited to come talk to you. Uh, um, a love of Benjamin Britten. Indeed. Where does that come from, please? Where did that start? I can tell you exactly where, where when that started. Was it 1994? <laughs> no, it was about <laughs> 10 years earlier, actually. Right, right. Uh, I remember uh, going to... I was, I was brought up in Ipswich, oh, and I right. went to Ipswich Library and got out a box cassette, uh, a cassette box set of, of Britain's String Quartets. I remember the cover specifically. You know, it's absolutely imprinted on my mind. Nice picture of, of Britain on the front, and listening to the first quartet and being absolutely blown away by the opening. And to anyone who doesn't know it, it's uh, it's it's the most magical um, texture. He has this cluster D major cluster right at the top of the of the two violins of viola, with a, a kind of pizzicato um, bass, gentle arpeggiated bass. And to me, it was just kind of mind-blowing because it sounded completely alien to me. I mean, it sounded completely modern in, in adverted commas, but utterly captivating, utterly beautiful. And in fact, to this day, the magic of that opening hasn't left me. I mean, I still, when I put that on, I'm kind of captivated by it. That, I suppose, 
set me off really uh, and then it was it was really working through pretty much everything and and by my late teens i was i was really um really loved loved pretty much all his all his music and that love of britain hasn't really left me i mean I, you know i've gone in and out of the, the, looking at other composers and 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 so on and so forth but i think of any of a single 20th century composer i can't think of one whose music um does more for me aside from his um no, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask that in a moment. Let me ask this first. Did you did you do any kind of county youth music in Ipswich? I think I... I'm assuming that you're a musician. As, I mean, obviously you're a musician, you compose it, but I'm, I'm assuming that you're an orchestral musician. I was. I, I mean, when I was a child, I played the cello, so I did play in the, in the Suffolk Youth Orchestra for a while. When um, did you play in the Suffolk Youth Orchestra, please? God, I'm sorry, this is terribly important, Mr. Fitz. <laughs> it would have been. I, let's have a think. I was, I was probably about 12, 12 11 or 12. Uh-huh. Um, I left I left Ipswich when I was 14 to, to go to music school. But prior to that, I think I was playing in the Suffolk Youth Orchestra. Who was the conductor? Philip Shaw. You Oops. were conducted by Philip Shaw, too. Yes. So, oh, yeah. 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 So, so I was. I, I'm a Suffolk. Uh, Suffolk. Well, you know, you, you just know have to it. tease people to get the information out, and then you can reveal it. Um, uh, yeah. So I did Suffolk Youth Orchestra in 1989 until 1991. Oh, no. no, no. I think you. Obviously, yes. I'm a lot younger than I do, but but I think maybe you're <laughs> no, a little I'm, bit older than I am. Yeah. 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 Um, absolutely. Uh, um, yes, so Philip Shaw then. So that must have been at the beginning when he was sort of when he'd taken on the reins. Yes, yes, it would have been. Uh, he he was very good to me, Philip Shaw, because it was through him that I got a county Suffolk County scholarship to then go to the Purcell School. And there were very few count, uh, counties offering scholarships. I think they were Suffolk and one other county. utterly fascinating and I'm wondering whether you experienced that as well yes and, and I mean this is an odd thing to say I can understand people who can't stand Britain's music partly <laughs> because it, it, you know the flip side is that you love it I th- I'm not saying he's someone you love or hate but I can understand people who yes. really don't like it partly because his personality for me at least is so um encapsulated in his work it's so impossible to kind of divorce from from his music so when i listen to britain i'm i, I kind of really feel his it feels his, awkward doesn't it sometimes it feels it, awkward especially it, it when does. he forces 
forces sort of time signature changes in order to accommodate you know the the lyric in a in a verse i mean i adore that but i also hear that as awkwardness that people will just go well that sounds a little bit childish yes yes no i i i, I know what you what you mean um and there, i think there's always a, a often anyway a sense of friction and tension in in the work it's 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 rarely kind of completely kind of serene and relaxed there's always often something kind of bubbling under the surface um I think, I mean, I've, I've asked myself this question many times. What's wonderful for me about his work is that he he had this extraordinary brain. I mean, he was a genius, I think, in the which is a word which is kind of overused, but I think for Britain, it, he, he was a true genius in the sense that he had a a kind of this amazingly mathematical, logical brain, but it was fused with this incredibly instinctive sense of. of of musicality, musicality and imagination, as well as a very strict work ethic. I mean, he worked, you know, six hours a day, at least composing pretty much all his life. So th- those three things combined, I think, is for me is is maybe what draws me to his to his work. I, but I'm just spellbound by his technique, which alone wouldn't be, wouldn't be particularly enthralling. But it's the way that he manages to combine that with his expressive. Um, core, which, or the, the way that that articulates his his expressivity, which um, does it for me. I found <clears throat> I found his personality and his sort of um, I can't think of the word now. The fact that he documented so much, the fact that he essentially a sort of kleptomaniac, albeit very neat one. Um, I find that utterly, utterly enthralling because it feels that there is so much information about him that, and yet you can never really know exactly what he was like. Uh, and and I find him both fascinating and disturbing at the same time um, because there's... Or, or maybe it's just because I read Humphrey Carpenter's biography first when I was working in Oldborough and just thought, oh my God, it feels like I'm in the centre of the world. But maybe it sounds as though maybe I'm the only one who thinks that, or I'm in the minority because I don't get that from you. Um, I, I, you know, I've, I've often asked myself what, what he what he would have been like as a as a person like you. I read the Carpenter and I read the Paul Kildare um, biographies, and and I've seen the interviews. You know, there aren't that many, but there's quite interesting ones. Um, and he comes to me. He comes across as being quite impatient in a funny way certainly when he's been interviewed you sense this yeah this slight impatience slight um aloofness mm. maybe um uh, uh he's very quick he's a very very quick person like uh, in every on every level you know I, I think he was very athletic very keen on sport and um a very quick brain and i think i mean i think he suffered in a way because I mean, this kind of comes into our hunting fathers a little bit. In that, before the Second World War, he was regarded as this slightly um, modernist, uh, suspiciously clever kind of composer who was suddenly on the scene. Suspiciously clever. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to be suspiciously <laughs> clever? <laughs> yeah, That's you a know, lovely, I mean, lovely it, in terms of English music, he, he didn't quite, you know, it, it wasn't quite the done thing. I think, or at least that's the impression I got. Um, uh, but then you see after, I suppose in the 50s and 60s, the, the avant-garde thought he was 
ludicrously outdated. I mean, yes. Boulez et al. would ridicule him and hardly even acknowledge him as, as a composer. And I, and I, know, I mean, that's documented that he, he did feel uh, a sense of, I think, insecurity later on because he, he you know, he, he just felt his, his music w- was outdated, I think. Um, and that maybe, you know, maybe his his time is really, it's been in the last 20, 30 years that his reputation has, has actually risen even more, I, I feel, maybe. of Britain I went to school in West Suffolk and West Suffolk was boring West Suffolk is boring um, and yet as soon as my music teacher told me about there being a composer on the east coast of Suffolk it's like oh suddenly actually yeah. we've got you know we've we've got a football team and I've got someone who I can cheer um, and I wonder whether it's a generational thing that for people like of our age maybe we are the advocates and maybe musicians of our generation are the advocates such that that's how his... I don't know, I'm clutching at straws here. Do you understand what I mean? God, I hope so. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think every every generation, you know, um, responds to to, 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 this, to such a figure in a, in a different way. And I think his music does still represent a way forward that can still use triads, can still use a type of modality, tonality, in... in in an in a absolutely breathtaking way. And, and for, I think for many people that's a real inspiration still. It certainly is for me. Uh, our Hunting Fathers, and this is a reduction. It's a reduction. Um, stroke arrangement you could say yes um so it's reducing what is basically a work for full orchestra and soprano down to obviously still soprano with 12 instruments now the instrumentation um was partly agreed to fit with with britain symphonietta which is 10 instruments so in this arrangement i've got two additional instruments one percussion and a harpist but otherwise it matches the symphonietta so that was was kind of planned at the outset in the hope that they could obviously be programmed together and toured together possibly as well what have you had to cut <laughs> uh, i don't mean in terms of music but yeah. in terms, you know it's a reduction it's so a, therefore you've had to you've had to do the unthinkable and interfere with britain's yeah. writing you bastard (laughs) well yeah I was slightly daunted when I was asked to do it Um, I've had 
to state the obvious in a way i've obviously had to cut out a large number of of instruments but i mean what's what's reassuring what was reassuring for me when i was asked to do it is that I, britain's music is fairly thinly scored often yes, i mean yeah. it's quite transparent um often that you know there's there's a lot of melodic writing and a lot of bass there's not often often a great deal in the middle filler does he really he doesn't do filler he's not a chord composer in the in the you know sense of Debussy and people Mm. like that um so it's for me it's it's melodically driven and that you know I I could see a way through at, at the beginning um I got obviously got to know the piece much better I mean I knew it but not that well and um kind of tried to isolate the bits that might be more taxing than than others, uh, but there weren't too many corners that that, that were. I suppose worrying. the the reason for the question is is that if he is if he writes sparsely anyway, and I know yeah. that this is, I'm right in saying he calls this his his real opus number one, so it's quite early. He regarded it as his first grown up piece, but even then he's writing sparsely. So if he's writing sparsely, how do you go about reducing something that is already sparsely written? That's really what I'm. Why I'm asking you, what did you cut? And how did you go about it? Well, as an example, <clears throat> um, let's say there was a, I mean, this is off the top of my head, but let's say there was a, a solo for trumpet, for instance. I would possibly rescore that for oboe because it was it would be a, a similar enough or a close enough timbre um, for that. If there was a duo for, say, two clarinets, I'd... I'd rescore that for maybe flute and clarinet to, to, to keep the balance so you know things had to be obviously had to be changed do you st- do you sense that that responsibility I mean if you're if you're that connected to Britain's music then do you I don't know do, does somebody like you sort of feel slightly uneasy about interfering Yes, I did. Oh, well, 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 I did. But I mean, he... almost like there's a parent in the room looking over your shoulder. No, don't do that, please. Yes, don't. I, did. I did choose that deliberately. I... Well, no, I, I did. You know, he, <laughs> he was peering over my shoulder at various points. Um, uh, but I, he was—I mean, from what I know about him, having read the biographies, I mean, he was a very pragmatic person, and you know, he himself rescored quite a lot of. Purcell and other composers to suit specific events. I think also the fact that it, it's been such an unjustly uh, kind of neglected work of his in many in many respects. I think he, I hope he would have been quite glad to to see it being given a new lease of life. Um, you know, but I mean, you know, this is maybe yeah, it's not thinking. been played very much, Ben. All right, get <laughs> <laughs> yourself lucky. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. Right. Um, what have you most enjoyed about this process? It's been great to get really inside a, a, a score of his in a way that I've never done before. I mean, to that detail with that detail. Um, I think it's also an it's a unique piece for him, in my view. Uh, I mean, it's basically his first orchestral work, mm. uh, but it's not an apprentice piece. I mean, it's, his technique is fully formed. He doesn't put a foot wrong in the scoring. Um, it's but but it's the, the scoring is so fastidious, and that's something I've not seen in later Britain, which is in itself fastidious. But this is it's so detailed. It's, I mean, every bar is packed full of, you know, string indica- specific string indications, fingering, and so on. It, it, uh, but more than that, I think, and this is maybe why it was so baffling at the premiere, and it was. I mean, it got slated in the press, and and the audience, including Bridge, his teacher, and his publisher, were. were 
were perplexed by a lot of it. I think the reason being that he's really exploring different, different, a different kind of sound world, drawing on his interest in in Berg, um, Schoenberg, Stravinsky in particular, and basically setting that out for the world to see. I mean, showing the world what he can do with a full orchestra in the most riveting um, and exhilarating and and often very beautiful way. My memory of Bridge is that he was always drunk. I think that or was he was at lessons. <laughs> or I'm sorry, not not that he was always drunk, but as in whenever Britain wrote about going for for lessons with Bridge, or was yeah. I? Am I confusing him with someone else? Uh, no, not Holt. That's not. No, it wasn't Holt. I think John Ireland. We, we, oh, we okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Yeah. No. Yeah, I, okay, right. I must do my research. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. I. I think. I mean, Bridge. Especially to, I think, in the final section of the piece, he—I can't remember—he described it as being too, too kind of raw or something. I can't remember the exact. But he was quite orthodox, wasn't he? Bridge. He came from more from more from a sort of an orthodox compositional background. Uh, well, yes and no. He he was very in, um, which was quite unusual at the time. He was very interested in what was going on in 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 mainland Europe. I, mean, I, I think it was really due to him that Britain was introduced to the music of people like Stravinsky and, and Berg and some of Bridges' music. And I don't know it well enough. I'm ashamed to say, but you know, it's it's very very forward looking for what was being written at the time. Mm. So I think he he was quite maybe quite unusual in that regard um but it's certainly what britain was absorbing on the radio and at concerts i think comes through in this score it, um in a way that I, I haven't seen it in other pieces do you see this as your work i mean obviously britain's no. work but how to what extent is this you not much at all and one of the things i decided on at the very outset was to basically respect his scoring as, as as much as I could, where it was impossible, I tried to imagine what or second guess what he would have done, and I hope my knowledge of his music helped in that in that regard. Um, there would have been a completely different way of writing this, which would have been to which would have been legitimate, which would have been to say, okay, you know, I'll start from scratch, I'll make it my own arrangement, I'll put my own put my own take on it, and and. How would you, how, for somebody like me, I don't understand yeah. how that could be the notes. The notes, but how does that work? Well, I would have, I would have taken the, the short score, which he would have always made prior to to scoring, and basically made different decisions about the instrumentation. It still oh, would have balanced. Okay. It still would have worked. It, you know, rather like Weber does with that amazing Bach um, yes. Yes. arrangement. It couldn't be by anyone else other than Weber. I mean, the arrangement it's unmistakably Weber. Not that I could be unmistakably me, but I, I could impose my own personality on it. And it yes. would have been great fun. Yeah. It would have been interesting. It would have been a completely different way of doing it. Not one that I wanted to do for for this content. I, don't, I, I just felt that I wanted to keep, to, to, to keep something of what he had achieved in the orchestral work from a, from a, a, from a kind of sonority point of view, to keep that in this piece. As and, much as best I could, and as uh, as composer, arranger, redu- reducer, whatever your title is, uh, for this particular work, yeah. uh, does one have to check in with the commissioner to make sure that the commissioner is happy with this, with your plan, or well, do you just go, "Here you are, Roger." Roger Wright, um, and it was on Colin Matthews' recommendation 
um, for which I'm extremely grateful. He's, he's been wonderfully supportive. But Roger Wright, in fact, wasn't prescriptive at all. He's just said, you know, it's a reduction for 12 instruments. Um, and I didn't ask. Nicely, hands-off <laughs> brief. Yeah, no, no. He, uh, and he did, you know, I, I didn't ask. Uh, how, how, how it should be done? Yeah, um, he didn't tell me. I didn't no. ask. I've just done this. I'm not entirely sure yeah. the work he wants. Yeah, exactly. That, that's yeah. Right. That's Who right. knows? I'm off the hook. I'm not going to the concert. <laughs> I think probably Colin may have had an in- inkling that I wouldn't have done something kind of way out and eccentric. Uh, so you know, it's quite a. I, I imagine that for for people who who don't exist in this sort of bubble. And it is a lovely bubble to an extent. I'm now looking at the books and thinking, yeah, this this just epitomises, you know, short scores and 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 hardback books just epitomises the bubble that I'm talking about. Um, that that it's a, a sort of an odd working life in that people sort of know what you do and sort of predict what someone else will do, which is what the basis is for recruiting them to do a project. Do, do you understand? What I mean? Whereas in other walks of life it's not quite so amorphous as that because it sounds like quite a risky business doesn't it yeah it's uh i suppose it's quite a kind of niche yes. uh industry in that in that sense and again i mean that's there are no explicit requirements there are no explicit objectives laid out on a piece of paper there's no fallback there's just yeah. well we think he'd be quite good yeah shall we ask him yeah <laughs> i mean again you know colin who of course have worked with Britain and I've known him well for, for many years I think you know it's again if, if you're lucky enough to have a recommendation for someone like him who would know what Roger was looking for then I mean the, the, the path is is more kind of easy to, to, to see I suppose um, but I mean my god there would have been plenty of other composers who who I'm sure would have would have done a very very good job maybe a different you know a different angle on it altogether and um, I, I hope what I've done will both work and be um, good musically you know or will be uh, compelling musically but, but we'll fingers see. crossed fingers crossed <laughs> You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. My name is John Jacob. You can find the podcast on Spotify, Audioboom, Apple, Acast and other places. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, on Facebook at Thoroughly Good Me and on Instagram at Thoroughly underscore Good.